Hello, everyone, and welcome to Women Leaders in Medicine, a special podcast series led by our section editor on pulmonary and critical care medicine, Dr. Jasbal Singh. The views of the speakers are their own and do not reflect the views of their respective institutions. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of Women Leaders in Medicine. I'm Jaspal Singh. I'm a pulmonary and critical care specialist in Charlotte, North Carolina. And with me today are two amazing speakers about advancements in pulmonary thoracic oncology and help us understand the trends from a pulmonary lens, if you don't mind. Uh, Susan, why don't we start with you, introduce yourself and talk to us about what you do and, and what brought you in the space. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks so much, Jasper. I really appreciate the opportunity to kind of share a little bit of my story. My name is Susan Garwood. I am an advanced bronchoscopist. I practice I'm here in Nashville, Tennessee. I also have the, the pleasure of being the pulmonary director for the HCA Enterprise. So in addition to doing procedures and spending time in thoracic oncology, I still have my hands in pulmonary and critical care from really a quality and standardization practice, but have just so enjoyed my, my pulmonary career, never really thought I would morph into being a pure proceduralist, but the advancements that we've seen after my fellowship to me has been what's really driven me in this space. And so I've had some amazing mentors along the way, but I really think that we are at a stage in pulmonary medicine where we truly can make an impact in thoracic oncology by finding early stage disease. So I really spent my last five to 10 years focusing on that, shifting the stage in lung cancer. So really look forward to kind of sharing what that looks like with you all today. Thanks for that introduction. Nina, I'm not going to try your last name, so let you sort of introduce yourself. That's okay. Absolutely. Not a problem. So my name is Nina Melainen. I'm an interventional pulmonologist. I'm actually out of Pennsylvania, Doylestown. Our headquarters is in Lansdale, Pennsylvania. I am extremely passionate about educating the population, the community, and ultimately try to bind everybody together. It has been a challenge all along. Born and raised in Morocco, barely spoke English until 98, finally ultimately came here to be able to find the community that's welcomed the education, welcomed the help. And after going from academia to for-profit, then non-profit, and ultimately founded uh, Lung Health Services, we were able to found, find the right recipe to be able to help as many people as possible. Personally, I have lost three patients uh, to uh, lung carcinoma. And at this point, uh, my goal is to be able to help everybody that has or has the the potential to (laughs) suffer through what I've suffered through in the past. So hopefully with the right team, the right place, the right support, we'll be able to actually make the impacts that we should all make in lung cancer. No, that's that's well said. I think that's great. Um, You guys are very, obviously very passionate about this work. And then, so a lot's happened in the sort of pulmonary thoracic oncology work. And I think both of you would probably label yourselves as pulmo-oncologists in some ways, you know, and, and so it's been becoming pretty trendy. But, you know, there are a lot of trends out there in medicine, and I think um, all of us have watched them come, some go. But what trends should pulmonary and critical care physicians, leaders in this space, really be paying attention to? And I'll start with you, Susan. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think if we're going to find lung cancer, the very first thing we have to do is increase the funnel, right? So we have to capture the patient. So the advancements in technology, not just novel to our field, but things like radiomics and artificial intelligence to actually 
pick out these nodules out of our radiology reports, um, out of imaging with specialists that aren't thinking about lung cancer and spending, like Nina said, vested time educating providers and those patients that if you have lungs, you can get lung cancer and that there are no symptoms. And so really looking at artificial intelligence and looking at natural language processing to be able to pull out these nozzles to me has really made a huge impact as specifically in my career. But if we can find those and then navigate them to new technology like robotic endoscopy, um, it really will, that combination of an opportunity to, to pluck out something from a radiology report and then immediately navigate it to a new technology technology that now has the ability to diagnose lung cancer, even the size of a Cheerio, to me, that is fantastic. But it takes a group of people in order to do that. But I think to me, those are the, the two most exciting things that are occurring and really will make a huge impact in the next five to 10 years. Interesting. So I kind of want to break it down to what your, thing, your three lessons are. Basically, capture more patients. Ideally, I think you mean that also earlier in a more sophisticated way, in a more personalized approach. I think the second thing you kind of got into is sort of the diagnostic innovations, pay attention to diagnostic stuff as well. And then the third thing is sort of the idea of you're kind of getting at team-based approaches towards thoracic oncology. And I think those things are the three paradigms to me. I couldn't agree with you more. Nina, what are you, what are you seeing from your trends? So from my standpoint and where I'm at, I'm in a small community, in a rural community, suburban community. What has been the issue really uh, is to be able to get the patients to um, get a diagnosis study. Uh, so from our uh, palm critical care standpoint, we are more aware of the technology that's available and how we are able to actually capture early on uh, small lesions. Although I agree with Susan, a lot of medical of the medical community is not necessarily educated or well-educated, I should say, with regards to uh, navigational bronchoscopies, robotic bronchoscopy that will allow us to capture the Cheerio-sized nodules in their mind is the old ways. And specifically in the rural area, I always say past Pittsburgh and before California, generally you have a vast area where if you're in the middle of nowhere, you're not going to be able to have access to that technology. And that is our, one of our biggest challenges right now is to be able to make it available and approachable to all outside of big academic centers. Secondly, I think um, the precise personal care and the genomic uh, sequencing ability is unknown to the majority of the medical community. And I think not only artificial intelligence, but also genetic tools are available to help us navigate those pathways, even if we do not have access to the most up-to-date technology. So education is going to be needed, and I think we agree on this, not only in capturing the patients to allow them to better understand, because right now it's like this really cloudy area around the world of lung cancer. They hear lung cancer, they think it's their doom, or they say, okay, you should be able to treat it right away because we're hearing about all these commercials and these immunotherapies. It's the two extremes. And I think if we take the time to be able to help them understand what is it that we are doing specifically when we diagnose, when we navigate, and when we resect, and better understand that it is important to actually get the CAT scan to figure out if they do have lung cancer or not, rather than having the ostrich policy and sticking your head in the sand and continue smoking, I think that will be extremely helpful. Health disparities, 
and the understanding that the stigma has to be beaten down. As we all know, a good 20% of our population are non-smokers, and that's yet to be understood by uh, the general community as a whole. Well, Nina, thanks for that. I'm going to try to sort of bullet point what you're kind of getting at. I think you the idea of making making lung cancer or thoracic oncology more of a um, access issue. The idea of bringing it to more, even though the technology exists in certain centers or certain locations, it's not ubiquitous. So we've got to be better about getting access, what you're kind of getting at to the technology, whenever it's available, to make it more personalized. And so the idea of a personalized approach is kind of what you, you're alluding to as well. And then a lot of the other part is about the ideas social issues, including health disparities to social stigmas and the psychology and the underpinnings there of, of lung cancer, that recognizing that it's still a lot of uphill work to go. It's no longer just a smoker's disease or labeled as a smoker's disease and such. And I think those are very important things. The other part that you kind of brought in is that this whole area is kind of evolving pretty quickly. So both of you showed a lot of expansive growth in the thoracic oncology space and across uh, touching other teams, touching other patients, other new populations. And yet it seems like a lot of centers are still kind of going, making baby steps. So Susan, I'm going to pick on you first, because I know this is right up your alley of how do you get a large scale innovation kind of moving in this space when so much is happening, so much excitement that it seems like, you know, things are like center by center and kind of very small scale, but the whole population is moving at a different pace. Yeah, absolutely. And this is my biggest passion and, and really the reason I made a jump between institutions about six years ago, because wanted to see, could we do scalability? You know, could we not operate in silos? We all in the community feel like we're kind of on islands unto ourselves, especially if we're not in academia. And so the question was, could we avoid that silo mentality? Could we start a top-down approach decide what good quality medicine looks like, specifically good quality workup of lung cancer. So we began with basics, NCCN guidelines. How do you work up a nodule, including making sure when you decide about your biopsy, a patient's had a PET scan first. So right biopsy first time, every time with a forethought into what your next step was going to be. Do we think they're operative? Do we think they may need SVRT? Do we think we need molecular testing? And really standardize what we call adherence protocols. So we made algorithms and then we vetted those algorithms with leaders and then we transmitted them throughout a system, starting with our Sarah Cannon partners and then throughout a health system. We looked at how do you find lung nodules and really made that a systematic approach. And then we rolled that out and handed that technology only to people who agreed to follow the guidelines. So we're looking at evidence-based guidelines quality and adherence, meaning when you don't follow the guidelines, we come back and say, let's come alongside and see. Um, I think a lot of the problem with trying to look into quality as well as volume is that it's a sticky business, right? So if physicians are off pathway or if they have complications, um, they may push back, right? Or they may leave your institution. And so we really want scale only if you have quality associated with it. And so from our standpoint, we've been able to move from one system, our parent system, now to by the end of this year, we'll have a hundred of our HCA facilities who have this nodule finder and have this agreed upon pathway. But we also bring along the resources with them to make them successful. So we start 
beforehand planning, why are we doing it this way? Educating, like Nina said, and then coming alongside to give them the resources from IT to navigators to coordinators, because this is a team effort. And that takes administrators to buy into, it can't just be one physician and one patient trying to navigate this alone. And so scale really takes um, something that can be operationalized on a bigger level. And those in a community setting, if you're trying to recreate that over and over and over again, the expense, the, the time, the frustration really isn't worth it. And so we really wanted a top-down approach and it's doable, but you have to have a focus on quality. You have to be able to engage your physician on why it's worth their, their time to do this. And so I think we all have a responsibility that if we're not following guidelines or we're not doing a good job, how do we do better? And I think that's the hardest part of trying to do something on a larger scale, but it can be done. And we've had wide success and we're really excited where this can go. Yeah, that's really fascinating. You know, what are your thoughts? Interesting enough that, um, I mean, kudos to you, Susan, because it's been an uphill battle with me as far as trying to convince administrations, like I said, for profit, nonprofit academia, to be able to invest into something they don't see the return for immediately. And from the financial standpoint, my part was the finance should follow wherever life is, right? If we're going to actually serve in beating lung cancer, there shouldn't be a question. We just need to make the numbers work. After trying to build the first program, the second and the third program, and really where every single time when we initiated the uh, pathways and the different algorithm, we were stopped because of a delay for another program growing someplace else, et cetera. That's when I said, okay, enough is enough. We're going to do it my way. And I went ahead and rather than being limited by the administration, if you want cloud, we decided to take back medicine. And I put physicians first in a sense that by knowing how to build a program, we will be able to ultimately put the patients first. And rather than asking for permission to build a program, we showed them how it ought to be built. And if they would like that service, then by all means, we'll come to you. Otherwise, we'll go someplace else. Because the limitation from an administrative standpoint, because of us not agreeing on what priority a program should have, really is a hindrance to the patients themselves, to the community, and ultimately the outcomes. So but in that mindset, by picking the right team members, educating all the physicians that are in different healthcare systems, we were able to build pretty strong programs and contracting out with different hospitals without them having to put up, if you want, the financial burden and the capital budgeting. And that was much more palliable for them. And automatically, the patients were better served without having to literally battle and sweat every day in meeting after meeting, trying to show them that, hey, you're in the business of helping these patients survive. Uh, but ultimately, the bean counters and everybody else don't necessarily agree around the table. So how, that's how we did it. Interesting. So, all right. So I'm going to sort of, that's a very <laughs> different direction than what I was thinking we'd go. But I think you're describing two very different scenarios. Um, so I think, um, Susan, just to kind of summarize what you're kind of getting at is you took a sort of a administrative collaborative approach. You basically said, you know what, we have aspirational goals. We have a means by which to get to those goals, such as our guideline-based, algorithmic, quality-based, and focused on metrics of performance. 
And we think that we do this right. We can not only scale it, we could probably, I think implicit in your thing was serve our population better. And I imagine you're probably in a competitive environment where you are in Tennessee, where you want to compete with other players and that's in that market. And so you thought that was the right approach. What Nina's describing is a very different environment. And so the idea of a very different environment where you have innovation, but there are so many layers to get there. And I think this resonates with a lot of our listeners potentially is you have a direction you want to move and you don't have that collaborative relationship with your administrative colleagues and partners, and they don't see that same vision or you can't come and meet part way. So as a leadership lessons, how do you, you've described two very different ways. So I'm going to have you both argue with each other a little bit and tell me, Susan, how would you handle Nina's issues as a women leader? I imagine there's a lot of, lot there that's packed in terms of issues that Nina might be facing. Any piece of advice for Nina there on how she met some of her issues? Well, I mean, I commend her. I certainly have been in a health system where I hit the wall. And so what we're both describing and what you're hearing both of us say is that we both have the same ultimate goal. We have patient-centric, physician-led. Both of us have the same core, right? And so the question is, are you with me or not? And if you're not, you know, you really have to be a strong leader in order to say, I'm not going to deviate. Okay, I'm not going to deviate from patients. I'm not going to deviate from quality. I'm not going to deviate from access. And so being able to navigate those hurdles, you have to be creative. You have to think outside of the box. You have to be willing to take risk. And and we both did that in different ways. She went on her own. I changed health systems completely to find that. So I think you have to, from a leadership standpoint, you have to think outside the box. I think you need excellent mentors along the way. I think that you got to be brave and you got to be willing to fail. And so I think those are kind of things I've learned along the way and here in, in Nina's story that we followed a similar path, but really took the path untaken, right? Because administrators aren't our friends. When I was you know, leaving the hospital where I was at, they said, no one's, no one's going to listen. And I said, I think they will. If I come back and say patient first, they said, well, you can't make them money. And I said, well, I am a lost leader to an ultimate goal of an early stage lung cancer, which is very profitable, both to obviously the patient from a survivability standpoint, but also to the health system, also to resources, also to payers. And I want to go to the hospital, start there, but then we want to take our good work and then come to payers and say, this is why you should use us too. This patient-centric, physician-led, cooperative with administrators can get us to this ultimate goal where we all win. But we all start stuck where Nina and I started, which is make us money. Tell us who's going to pay for it. Tell us where you're going to find the people. And so I, I see a lot of myself in, in Nina. I'm not sure if that's where you wanted me to go with that, but it's, it's awesome. an uphill frustrating battle. But you both heard that we both went at it in different directions and are both finding success. So go until you find your yes. That's fantastic. Nina, any thoughts on that? Absolutely. So uh, as Susan said, I've tried many pathways and with each pathway, even though it might be considered a failure by others, I think that ultimately I learned from it and figure out how to navigate the waters by meeting halfway. Remember the old story of the orange and the skin. We both want the same result ultimately, which is to save the patient. You can fight about it and say, okay, I want that orange. And if you just take the time to talk to the counterpart and say, hey, what would part, what part would you want from the orange? They might tell you the skin and you might tell, all right, I would like the fruit. And you can find the ha- halfway in between and say, okay, fine. We can agree to each use a different part of it. So hospitals 
would like the money. I want lives and saving people uh, from dying from lung cancer. So their biggest risk was they didn't want to spend. I believed in my mission strongly enough that I was willing to take the risk to spend. So I told them, fine, not a problem. If you are not willing to spend, I'll take the risk to spend it, but then I will own it. All I need is your support. And that did it because they're like, well, you know what? What do we lose? The biggest risk really was that they would lose the patients because if they do not follow through with whatever ultimately the patient figure out was the right way and the right path for them, the next healthcare system will be willing to take the risk with us and will be able to ultimately accomplish what we were really preaching to the choir and trying to uh, accomplish everywhere else. So I think there are some administrators that are really truly true believers because of their medical background, be it uh, if they are physicians themselves, respiratory therapists, nursing, whatever it is um, that is linking them to the clinical world. And there are others that have absolutely zero experience from on the, with regard to the medical world. And I think I've learned that you need to know your customers. And when you walk into that C-suite, you need to know about who you're speaking with as much as possible. The investigation is key. Otherwise, you're going to be speaking in the emptiness. You won't be able to comprehend. It's like you're speaking Chinese. Even They're looking for numbers. But to get to those numbers, you need to be able to follow through. Uh, And that was my biggest lesson is to investigate. That makes sense. And I'm sorry to interrupt. I was just going to say, yeah, I think fine. I just want to kind of bring it back to, you both describe important leadership lessons. You have a challenge, you have a goal, and to sort of navigate to your goals and what the framework as you're designing it, essentially, I imagine a lot of both of you, there was innovations are happening and you're trying to think that the goals are changing as the innovations evolve, but ultimately you're trying to be patient-centered, trying to get there. And you both approach this with different aspects. You have some leadership principles that have been, some of them you've already mentioned are time-tested proven leadership principles that are well, I think, vetted into the physician leadership space. But I'm going to change it and ask you, do you feel that as this podcast is about women leaders, um, as women leaders, do you feel like sometimes there was a bias in how you were treated versus some of your male colleagues? <laughs> Nina, I see you laughing. laughing. <laughs> we are both laughing. We both have great stories, I'm sure. I want to, uh, I don't know who you want to go first, but uh, yeah. Go ahead, Susan. <laughs> well, I mean, I, well, can, I can tell you, um, I, I was empowered throughout my training with fabulous, strong female leaders who said that I'm the same, right? That you, they, they viewed my, my brain and my skills is how um, I was raised up, right? So they just wanted to hone my skills as a physician, regardless of sex. When I finished my fellowship, and I had a great fellowship experience, my first job out, I requested, honestly, the job that I have right now. And they, I got a lot of, hold on there, little lady. And, you know, you're, you're getting ahead of yourself. And, you know, it's, it was a very much, very homogeneous practice that did not think outside the box. There were no women um, and still have no women in this particular practice, but it was, it was very, very interesting that eventually, you know, almost 15 years later, I ended up with the same job, but with completely different leadership where there is change. So there is hope, but my biggest impediment before was when I walked into my C-suite with my skirt and my heels and my business case, ready to rock it. My C-suite didn't know my name. 
did not know why I was there and asked me point blank, am I a surgeon? I don't understand if you're not a surgeon, why you're here. And does the surgeon know that you're here? And could you ask that man to come and join you so that he can speak to me? And I left. <laughs> so it, it just, that I wouldn't even have the opportunity to speak because of sex and lack of you know, being perceived, there is no business case unless you're a surgeon and you can make money. You know, you couldn't even get to quality, but it was a definite, I felt definite bias to the point I felt so strongly I had to make a change to go somewhere where I felt like at least I could be heard and that I had value for my skill set and desire to have quality, not just numbers. I had the numbers to show them, Nina. I mean, it was, I had the business case, I had everything, but you're absolutely right. I did not know my C-suite audience. I did not know how to handle being perceived as a non-surgeon woman in heels was somehow offensive. And it, um, it shaped me for sure, but it also shaped every other woman I've worked with that you have got to go unprepared. You have got to know your own value and it should not matter the color of your skin or your sex. When you go in, the goal is to get that patient-centric objective obtained I just had to honestly get out of my, my own head and realize that there was value in, in what I had to say. I just needed to be able to capture my audience in a different way. Wow, that's powerful. That's Nina, I know you can, you know, I know you're itching to add to that one. No, absolutely agree. It's, you know, and I made a point every single time I walk in a C-suite to wear a skirt or a dress with high heels. <laughs> I'm here, I'm a woman, and this is who you're going to be dealing with. And ultimately, I think what, um, what has really uh, shook me, uh, to take uh, Susan's expression, is that my biggest hindrance were women. And the unconscious bias that automatically it is okay to always rely on a man to be able to accomplish what we needed was absolutely mind-blowing. Um, my first, believe it or not, during my fellowship and during my training, my biggest advocate and empowering uh, mentors were men. Uh, it's a men's world in porn critical care and differently now, thank God. Uh, but in IP, as we see it, the majority are men, but they were really supportive. And surprisingly, quick example, whenever, uh, unfortunately, I had a miscarriage, the, the assumption done by uh, the uh, women in the office was, well, you were early on, so it's okay, you can just finish up the next four patients and then you can head out. So whenever you end up having that and then having to just say, maybe I'm making a big deal out of it. Like you need to suffer to prove that you are capable of doing the job because that's the motor really. If you don't show that you're strong, I mean, we see it today with Miles, right? She actually stepped up to the plate and stated that she was not going to be able to continue, that she was going to be a hindrance for her team. And she withdrew. She got a lot of negative comment and thank goodness, a lot of positive comments, but that idea and mentality that we need to be strong and suffer and go through it is what was beaten into us uh, as, I think, female physician. If you show that weakness, you might not be offered the ability to be on the stage. So you just get that grit and keep going in with grace, right? So ultimately, when, you get, when I got to the C-suite, surprisingly, like I said, I had the two 
extreme experiences. One hospital, the CMO was a female and was trying to help, but really thought that we should hold our room, our place, and not really step into the arena and let the men do their job. And quickly enough, I got out of that environment to find other women, very strong, powerful, empowering non-physician that believed in the mission and helped me and gave me the advice before we walked in and stayed in, this is who this is, this is what this one will react to, and this is how you need to present it to this one. So you need that team approach and really not only having mentorship but sponsorship is key as a female we should be able to help one another rather than try to push each other away to try to get to the top and we are teaching residents interns and other female physicians that it is important to support one another because sometimes we get in each other's way and it's not okay. Ultimately, if we nurture our environment and we hold hands, we'll be able to hopefully get there. Hence, founding Women in Interventional Pulmonology, not to not have any men members in there, but rather to have the he for she movement and more women empowering others. And I'm happy to say that even though pretty much my whole team is female, we do have our men who are our CFO. <laughs> and it's amazing because when you see us in a C-suite and we walk in, they're like, oh my gosh, is there men amongst you? He is the minority, but he's happy about it. So, and uh, yeah, it's quite an experience. That's fascinating. So both of you describe, I mean, a lot of the challenges I think a lot of our listeners are seeing a lot of, and even the ones who are the, the men in the, the men in the audience probably need to pay attention to, you know, with more women graduates from medical school now outnumbering the male, female, male colleagues. I think Susan, your practice you describe is not that far down the road for me, I suspect. <laughs> and, and, uh, and I think a lot of us can see that. And I think we, I think what you both described is a lot of the challenges that people have in this day and age. So thank you for leading in this space and for creating that space for others to grow. Now, coming back to our topic of, I thought we'd talk about robots and all this fancy tech and gadgets. And we've talked, we've gone way around it, but both of you have done a lot of innovation. I want to see like sort of pick a innovation or two specifically that you're extraordinarily proud of and the results behind it, if you don't mind. Um, so you've obviously done a great job developing the framework. We've talked about like the idea of how do you how, how do you approach it, the paradigms. You've talked about how to get there. We talked about some of the challenges you've had, especially as women leaders going, growing, getting, getting there. But I'm sure that both of you have a couple of things you're incredibly proud of that you can sort of say, look what we did so far. And maybe even what give us insight what's coming next. Uh, Susan. Yeah, I, I think kind of two things, some of which I, I, I hit on both of those was, you know, finding lung cancer early. So really, when I came on, we built this algorithm um, to find lung nodules. And thus far, we have uh, been able to obtain out of those incidental nodules up to a 10% cancer rate of return. So basically, the patient had a scan, we found a spot, we navigated, diagnosed it and got lung cancer out of it. Um, we've gotten lots of cancers out of that, but we've done that on scale so much so that we found over 2,000 cancers in that manner. And in me, that's extraordinary that you can take something and scale that. And the way that we did that was in tandem. If you find them, you have to have a piece of technology to diagnose it. 
And when I went through training, again, it, we didn't have a tool. Peripheral navigation advanced. And so I was early to jump on that um, in 2011 um, and, and really work through peripheral navigation. It had its, uh, its limitations, but I uh, was lucky enough to be one of the first 10 in the country with a robotic bronchoscope. And we have now done um, almost 700 cases. So we've done more at our institution than any place in the world. And never in my entire life, tiny town girl from East Texas of 3,000 people whose counselor said, don't set your sights too high to be able to go and say, look what we did. 700 robotic navigation, 700 lives touched and doing things I never thought that we would do. And to bring people on, like Nina said, the next wave is see one, do one, teach one. And oh my God, Jess Ball, I'm having fun. So much fun to be able to do that. So those are my two crown jewels thus far. And if that's the rest of my life and my legacy is is incidental nodule finding that's gonna pluck out cancer from um, reports and to be able to use the robot to diagnose them in whatever way we will use that robot in the future. We're now talking about injecting chemotherapeutics through that. We're talking about doing um, ablation therapy through that. We're talking about injecting oncolytic viruses. We have all of these companies who go, man, 700 is a lot. You got a lot of people. And then I say, you know what? I have 50 more of me across an enterprise. Let's get together. Let's figure this out. We can do that. It's the power of big data. And I, I just, I never in a million years thought this is where I would end up, but I couldn't be more proud of sticking to my mission, sort of, so to speak. And so I just think the future is, is so bright. That's just brilliant. I would say hashtag amazing, I guess, something <laughs> like that. That is just pretty, pretty cool. Nina. That is amazing. Congratulations. Yes. I think um, looking at where we were and what we have accomplished with my team in since 2018, um, I, I am absolutely ecstatic uh, to state that um, Whereas a lot of people thought that I would fail starting a private endeavor in the world of interventional pulmonology, I'm happy to report that it has been a success, not only financially speaking, but more importantly, uh, with regard to stage shifting. Uh, so as we uh, allowed patients the freedom to not be restrained within their healthcare system and really come to us regardless of their geographical location, God bless digital and virtual to be able to review any scan from anywhere and be able to guide them in ultimately going to local areas that have access to the technology. We're able to help those that are close to us by coming to us without being limited uh, by their insurances or anything else like that. And we were able um, for three consecutive years, despite COVID, having a stage shift every single year. Uh, when I first started the program in the area, we had close to 70% of the population uh, being diagnosed as stage three and four. And I'm happy to report that we were able to flip that around by implementing the right algorithm and the right process, but also with the support of the industry that was willing to take the risk to bring us the machinery and allow us to use it without necessarily paying upfront. And that, model allowed us to impact uh, these patients and uh, get them to a cure uh, because of the diagnosis in stage one and two. At this point, I'm happy to report that the majority, uh, 60, a good 60%, 58 to 60%, uh, the numbers for this year are not out yet, are in stage one and two. And that is massive uh, because um, that means 
it's their life. Uh, although I got to tell you, stage three, um, small cell carcinoma is definitely treated differently right now with the immunotherapies and everything else that we have available. So that itself is not necessarily a death sentence right away. And I think being able to say that uh, definitely is powerful enough to encourage every rural community to not be scared to make the investment and be able to help all the new IP docs that are terrified of going on their own without necessarily having the support of the C-suite, et cetera, you can do it because this model shows you that you need to get the training. And then if you're ready, the algorithm is right there. It's absolutely doable and feasible. And I think the other aspect of our impact on the community was to be able to uh, launch a, a patient education platform that helps them understand really what is it that they're dealing with. So created a foundation, Dr. Nina Long Care Foundation, that will allow every uh, person, whether they're my patients or not, to just log in for half an hour to be able to understand better what is lung health about. And uh, that's how it spreads, right? That's how they are able to educate others and understand the stigma and understand the courage and the bravery to be able to undergo that screening. Ultimately, the most scary part and the fear that they have is, what if I find that thing? What if I find that nodule? What do I do with it? you can reach out. And like I said, virtual world is a powerful world. It's a powerful tool because all I have to do is log in and review their scans and here you go. We'll have an answer and we'll help you through it. And I think those two massive accomplishments makes me proud of my team and they're definitely uh, a dream come true. I mean, I was called crazy when I stated that I was going <laughs> to the state from Morocco. I remember friend of the family looking like, what are you going to go do in the States again? You barely speak English. I'm like, oh, I want to, I want to do medicine. And they're like, you're crazy. Americans themselves can get through med medical school. You think you're going to do it? Uh, I can't wait to go back. I have yet to go back, but I cannot wait to go back. So in a lump sum, this is exactly where I am meant to be. And I'm looking forward to spreading the knowledge back home in Morocco and internationally. So wow. it's exciting, exciting times. Wow, both of you, that's incredible. I mean, we talked about the idea of scaling and not just starting, but also scaling something. We talked about reach and impact. We've talked about going to communities that are underserved. We've talked about the sort of community involvement that you and leadership at the C-suite and working with administrative partners, both of you in different directions. We've talked about technology and all the innovations that are out there. And both of you have inspired us today. And I just want to say thank you for that, all that you've done, all that you're doing, and all that you're going to do. And I don't think, Susan, the story's ended. I don't think Nina, the story's even close to ended. And so it's like one of those things where I just look forward to hearing more about all your adventures as you kind of move forward in all this and continue to impact your patients, the community, the people around you. And I want to thank you for joining us today on Consultant 360, Women Leaders in Medicine. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much, Jess Paul.